Chapter 5 of A Bachelor Girl in Burma by Geraldine E. Mitten. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 Buddhas and Bats. In England, where one day might be June and the next November, it is impossible to arrange plans for outdoor expeditions with any certainty of being able to carry them out. Things are better managed in Burma. Any day may be fixed upon with the perfect assurance of fine weather. We took full advantage of this while I was at Moulmein, and of the numerous excursions planned we did not fail to enjoy every one. The most interesting of all of these was the visit to the famous farm caves, which lie about eight miles from Moulmein across the river Ataran. The caves are so called because at one time they were farmed out by the government for the sake of the rich guano, with which the floor is inches deep from the presence of myriads of bats. This somewhat curious lease is now discontinued. We were a party of four that day, and we drove the first four miles in the carriage, down to the ferry, over the river, followed by the servants and provisions in a gary. At the ferry we struck upon a large party of about twenty people, Chinese husbands and Burmese wives, with their mothers and children, going also on a pleasant outing. It is impossible to describe the swagger of the young husbands, who looked mere lads of about eighteen or twenty. They were as thin as laths, a thinness accentuated by the long, lean pigtails, tied up with scarlet which hung down their backs. They wore the flopping loose Chinese raiment of a beautiful sky-blue, huge, very new leather belts full of jewelry, gold watch-chains and baubles, English sailors' straw hats, and English yellow leather lace-up shoes. One little boy, about four years old, was the complete miniature of his father. His long pigtail was elaborately intertwined with pink, and he wore brown English shoes. He was evidently a great pet, and was privileged to walk ahead with the men, who sometimes carried him for a short distance, while the whole crowd of mothers and wives, looking extremely happy, carrying innumerable babies and chattering like monkeys, followed their lords. On the other side of the river, amid the brilliant green of the flat plantain leaves and the tall, spiky, toddy palms, were numbers of native huts, a regular village. When we landed, we found that the bullock carts, which had been ordered for us, were in festal array, having red awnings tied to four slight uprights at the corners, and gaily fluttering in the breeze. The floor of the carts was thickly covered with straw, and the result was not at all uncomfortable. We went two in each cart, and so had room to move about and change our position, but the whole of the other party, with the exception of one man, packed into two somewhat similar carts, and seemed to enjoy the process immensely. The exception rode a brand new bicycle, and tucked one end of his pigtail into his coat pocket to prevent its interfering with him. When a Chinaman is working or traveling, he generally coils his pigtail round and round the crown of his head, but it is not considered polite to leave it so in company. It would be as discourteous for a Chinaman to come up your stairs with a coiled-up pigtail as for a Burman to do so in shoes. The road was made of laterite, as so many of the Burmese roads are, and the red dust rose a good deal too freely for comfort. The way was lined at first by bamboos, and then by hedges, of shiny-leaved plants like our berberus, or laurel. Afterwards we came 
to a long raised causeway running across the flat baked mud of the paddy fields and lined by tall toddy palms the yellow of the reaped fields and the intense blue of the hills made my eyes ache at the corners of the field little white flags fluttering over huts denoted the occupation of the broker for the purposes of selling the crop a man was collecting toddy from the wayside palms mounting the trees by a bamboo ladder he makes a gash at the tough stems of the great leaves and fixes thereon a little black iron pot the sap slowly drops into it and he comes again some time later to collect it as there were several pots on one tree they looked rather like some gigantic fruit the toddy when first collected is sweet and insipid and uninteresting but it is not intoxicating once i had a desire to try it and signed to a man who was coming down from a tree to give me some he offered me an iron pot willingly enough but when i saw the loathsome mixture of dead and dying flies floating in a scum on the surface i declined his generosity in front of us gradually growing nearer was the razor edge of the great rock i had seen from the ridge afar off the precipitous face is scarred and seamed showing through between skinny skeleton trunks the very ghosts of trees it was sheer four hundred feet high and there was no place for a path on either side it would be necessary a hand and knee climb from base to summit an impregnable fort of nature's construction on the edge of the dizzy height was perched a tiny pagoda near which we could just make out the little figure of the pung yi or hermit in charge all alone in that tremendous glare overhead like a speck in the brazen sky hovered a vulture a more impressive sight i have rarely seen the pung yi had no shelter from the noonday heat but the shadow of his pagoda he was lifted far above the world and apparently inaccessible yet i am told that at certain festival seasons the rock is alive with good pilgrims climbing up like monkeys the single telegraph wire which had so far accompanied us suddenly ran off across the fields to siam and we turning a right angle soon pulled up at the zayats luckily there were two or three of these so we had not to amalgamate parties the orientals took one and we another which faced each other across the road the behavior of the whole party was excellent from beginning to end there was none of the horseplay and skylarking english aries would have indulged in though continual merriment was kept up we were amused to see all the superficial finery disappear and then the women cooked the men's food while the men lounged about afterwards they waited in the background and took what their lords and masters had left it often occurred to me in burma how very difficult it must be for native servants to learn to attend first to their mem sahibs before the sahibs a custom differing so entirely from all their own i am afraid they must think the sahibs great fools to allow such a perversion of the natural order of things as it is a merit to build a rest house but no merit to keep one in repair they often fall to pieces however the one we had was perfectly clean certainly far cleaner than it would have been in any european country it was not unlike those i had seen at the burial ground a long low shed-like building raised about four feet from the ground the floor was made of boards so loosely laid together 
that one could easily see between. Two large gaunt paria dogs wandered about below to pick up any scraps that might come through to them. The roof was tiled and supported by wooden posts. The ends of the shed were filled in, but the sides, the length of the building, were open, but for a light balustrade of wood, doubtless designed to keep out those same dogs at night. Part of the floor was about a foot lower than the rest, making a kind of a dais, or edge, on which we sat while we enjoyed the breakfast the servants had cleverly prepared in an adjoining shed. There was no furniture whatever, except a great earthenware chatty of water, in which we washed our hands. Of course, if one had one's own bedding, the rest-house would be quite sufficient to sleep in. For in this climate, at the dry season, very little shelter is requisite, but all necessities would have to be brought in by the traveller. The mighty cliff rising right opposite to us showed several yawning gaps, which were the entrances to the vast caves with which it is honeycombed. In one was a little wooden bedstead and some iron pots belonging to a hermit who lived there. It seemed odd to see this evidence of domesticity in the entrance of the cave, and near it was a kind of baby pagoda perched on a shelf of rock. I can imagine the utter stillness and loneliness of the place as the Pungi prepared to settle in for the night, with only the great stars blinking down on him from overhead, and the occasional howl of a hungry paria-dog for company. The larger entrance led by a flight of steps to a kind of high gallery, which ran into the rock for about a hundred yards, and had various caves branching from it. The main alley was lined with colossal Buddhas, seated for the most part side by side. They looked ghostly in the dim light, and there was something monstrous and inhuman in the repetition of them, so still and silent one after another. As our eyes grew accustomed to the dimness, we could see that they had all different expressions. One seemed to be suffering from the colic, another was sly, a third smirking, and one seemed to say, You may look at me, but you won't get much change out of me. This diversity of expression in these handmade images was a source of continual amusement to me. Alas, when the brass machine-made masks become common, all alike will be of a stereotyped dreariness. Seated in front of one image were two small carved figures of disciples. Anything more ridiculously cheeky than their expressions I never saw, but I suppose the artist had labored to get a quite a contrary effect. After all, the most impressive thing about that cave was the smell of bat. It was my first introduction to it, so I suppose I, like Mrs. Gummidge, felt it more than the others. It was pungent, penetrating, unforgettable. In fact, for some stink-poochies, whose acquaintance I made later in Ceylon, I do not think I have ever met any smell which made such a deep impression on me. How the Pungi could sleep in it? but then we do not all feel alike. Perhaps he looked upon it as a kind of company. While I was adjusting my camera on a carefully built-up pile of wood and stone to get an exposure, the whole crowd of little people in the other party streamed up the rough-hewn steps to the entrance. It was like a scene in a pantomime. The brilliant pinks and yellows were set off to advantage by the Chinese blue. How often have I blessed the Chinaman for giving just that color note the crowd needed, and which one found in nothing else. 
They were full of chatter and merriment, and the younger boys were screaming to imitate monkeys. They passed by into the inner recesses, and I waited until they returned, and tried to get a photo of them with a background of Buddhas. The contrast between colossal solemnity and doll-like daintiness would have been striking. Unfortunately, the older women, when they saw my intention, held their noses and ran. I do not know if they attributed to my camera what by strict rights appertained to the bats, but it seemed so. One Chinaman swaggered up to us and said grandly, Too much afraid. They not understand. But he did not offer to pose himself, in spite of his superior wisdom. On leaving this cave we walked for about a quarter of a mile in the deep shade of the perpendicular cliff that almost made one giddy to look up at it, and then finally mounted to the second entrance by a narrow path, winding upward through the jungle flower growing shoulder-high. I had never been in a stalactite cave before, and expected frosty pinnacles and hanging spikes of a snowy whiteness. In this I was disappointed. When our eyes grew accustomed to the dim light that fell through irregular shafts and air-holes, we saw strange pale colors, greens and yellows, but no snowy whiteness. Then one of our party arranged and lit a flare of magnesium powder, and the effect was wonderful. Over the high arched roof the bats flew screeching in countless multitudes. In the center was one large cluster, like a swarm of bees, and from this continuous flights of them radiated so fast across the roof that it made one's eyes run to watch them. We set off the powder several times, and at the last the party of little people from the first cave came in time to see it, and were struck dumb with admiration and awe. By this light we saw better the various forms of the rocks, which were fantastic and peculiar. There were some like filmy shawls, others like mammoth elephants, and others resembling cathedral columns, but all appeared as if draped and softened by some covering of gauze. Here and there columns of stalagmite rose from the floor, and the roof was honeycombed with deep pits or cauldrons. We were not satisfied with staying near the entrance, but, in spite of an ever-deepening sense of the presence of our friends the bats, scrambled on over rough rocks for a considerable distance until we could penetrate no further. Insensibly, we had become so much accustomed to the cooler air in the cavern that when we emerged once more, the warmth outside, even in the shade, struck our faces like the blast from a furnace. On arriving again at the rest-house, we found the servants had prepared tea, and afterwards, in the cool of the evening, we started homeward. The only incident on the return journey had its comic side. As we neared the ferry, Mr. M. told me that a Burman, whom he knew, or whose aunt or grandmother he knew, in the way of business, had asked us to come into his house in passing, and he had pleaded lack of time, but promised that we would speak to him on our return. He was there, evidently expecting us, and, as we alighted from our lordly wagons, he set out a small round table in the middle of the dusty village street, and put round it four chairs for us to sit down upon. Then he brought out a magnificent worked silver bowl of huge size, covered with a plate. All around us, in awed delight, stood the village population, mostly consisting of children. I do not think I ever saw so many children, 
or children quite so naked, all in one place at one time before or since. Two tumblers were placed on the table. It was intended that we should drink after the bin, of course, and when, with immense solemnity, the plate was removed, the bowl was discovered to be full of plain water, none too cold. I thought this might have been meant as an insult, but I was assured that that was quite out of the question where Berman was concerned. It was probably all the man had to offer. If he had offered the bowl as well, there might have been something to say for it. However, we braved typhoid and sipped a little of the water so as not to hurt our entertainer's feelings. The farm caves was only one among a number of excursions. Another day we went by a small launch down the river to Chanzon, pronounced Chanzon, a trip which can be done equally well by taking the regular steamer of the flotilla company. We started from Tiger Jetty about 8 a.m., and in the golden morning light dropped down the broad stream with the tide. There was a slight blue haze in the air, which seemed to envelop everything as in a veil of shining gauze, and made the low-lying green scrub on the far side of the river the color of aloes. On the hills around Moulmain the little pagodas shone as points of dazzling whiteness, and the broad band of silver on the large one sparkled like diamonds. The paddy boats with their red-brown sails, the Chittagonian boats with high sterns like gondolas, and the Burmese boats with their hoods, were each and all a source of delight. It seemed a blissful idea to travel downstream for many days in one of the last, with the thatch beehive roof to shield one from the sun, but I am told that the reality is anything but blissful. The thatch covering is too low to permit of any one standing up or even sitting with much comfort. Lying down full length gets fatiguing after a time. Besides, it is impossible to see anything in that position, yet it is imperative to remain under the shelter while the sun is high. The squeak of the oars, in which the boatman delights as much as the cartman does in his ungreased axles, gets perfectly maddening after a while. At night the boatmen talk incessantly and are offensive in their habits, so the joys of coming downstream in a native boat are more than counterbalanced by the evils. We landed at last amid a many-colored crowd on a wooden jetty, and passed beneath overhanging tassels of bright scarlet hibiscus to where a motley collection of carts awaited our choice. Then came a long dusty drive through the paddy fields, lined by small wild pumpkin trees laden with fruit like green apples. Presently we arrived at the bungalow and courthouse, where our host for the day welcomed us. After lunch I and a friend wandered up to the high pagoda, about half a mile away. A long flight of steps led up to it as usual, and at the base were two fine specimens of the leogryphs generally seen in this position. Their eyes were of transparent red tinsel, or glass, that has a ferocious gleam in the sunlight. From the pagoda platform there was a wide and beautiful view. We sat there a long time having a glimpse of the glittering sea on the far horizon, and noting the splendid butterflies, some the size of small birds that fluttered past. There was a large plaster elephant on one side of the pagoda platform, an offering from some wealthy Burman. The white elephant is a sacred animal, and is often represented in carvings at pagodas, 
but it was odd to see one alone, like this, and so singularly placed. Later on, when it was cooler, we went down to the village on the shores of a wide, shallow lake. Here the camera created great excitement. Though the light was going, and the trees threw heavy shadows, I tried to get a group of the people to pose, and just as I was about to take them, a woman rushed wildly up and squatted down in front. The minute the photo was taken, there was a universal roar of laughter from the good-natured villagers. I failed to see the joke, but it was evidently a good one, for they laughed and laughed consumedly, and passed it on from one to another, as if it were too good to waste. Just then my host came up and explained it was because the woman, who ran up at the eleventh hour, had been bathing, and had only her bathing lungi on, and no little white ingi or jacket. But she had been so anxious not to be left out, that she had plumped down just as she was. Even after we left the village the laughter still went on, ringing up the aisles of the heavy foliage trees. Judging by the way it was received, jokes must be scarce in Chanzon. I should not be surprised if this one turns up at the Christmas number of the next Chanzon Gazette, or whatever the equivalent may be. As we turned away, an excited group hurried after us, and by signs made known that they wished to extract the photo from the camera. My attempts to explain that the feat was impossible were in vain, until one more learned in the ways of cameras than the others came along. He stood in front of me majestically, and pointed with both hands to the sun, and then to me, and then to the camera, and what he said I know not, but the others understood and dispersed. This village was very pretty and very irregular. All the little huts stood on legs, as they invariably do, a fact which adds a piquant touch to an eye unaccustomed to it. There were many fine trees overshadowing them amongst which I recognized that bearing the jackfruit, a large green pumpkin with prickles, which grows on a stalk straight out of the trunk in a most surprising way. It is uninteresting to eat, and only used by the poorest. I tried to get views of this fascinating village from the lake, where a number of boys were bathing joyously, but the evening light failed me. The life of a Burmese villager is a very happy one, Paddy is cheap, and rice forms the staple of his diet. He generally has a growth of papayas or plantains for his household use. A papaya is a large fruit like a melon, only pear-shaped. Inside it is a rich yellow color, and the hollow center is filled with seeds like peppercorns. The usual way to eat the fruit is with a dash of lime and some sugar. But a friend I saw in Ceylon, where they are just as common but are called pawpaws, told me the true method was to have it in a finger bowl with sherry and cream, and having tried it, I can truly say it is excellent. Clothing need trouble the Burman villager little. He can get enough stuff for a lungi for a rupee, if he ever goes to the mad extravagance of buying one. Judging by those I saw, I should think they were generally family heirlooms, having been washed and worn until they had long lost all semblance of their first color. Children needed no clothes at all. The few bangles and beads distributed among them are doubtless family capital. I always found these little mites very attractive. They seemed so happy, and when they smiled they looked all teeth and bright dark eyes. They were sometimes, but not often, afraid of me, 
and when they were it was generally in a coy way that added to their charm making them bury their faces in their mother's ingies and peep out to see if i were watching them the men are as a rule kind and contented the prevailing disposition is one of good fellowship and there seem to be hardly any beggars in the rainy season of course the thatch and mat huts must be penetrated through and through by the damp and the whole place is a swamp but it is not cold driving rain as it would be with us and where you have nothing to spoil there is no reason to be anxious to compare this life without care and full of good fellowship and affection and plenty is that of an east end dweller who works for a pittance and a foul den is to compare heaven with hell another day we went from mulmain up the river to a very pretty village at cato the launch took us this time also and we passed within sight of martaban on the other shore i wish i could have gone further northward from here to one of the most famous of the burmese pagoda chek to which stands on a boulder looking as if a finger touch would send it crashing down but this expedition would have taken many days and i who had so much else to see would not spare the time we passed for some distance close along by the shore where the silvery leaves of the gangal turning their cottony backs to the wind looked exactly like those of willows the untidy heads of the arica palm the green of the flat plantain leaves and the tall elephant grass were all mingled in confusion everything was so beautiful and we went so smoothly that it seemed all care was left behind it came as a slight chill to find that the basket of food we had brought had to be suspended from the roof of the launch to prevent the intrusion of the white ants as we neared cato sampans came out to land us for we could not get near the landing stage owing to the shallowness of the water the way in which a native uses his oars in a sampan is very graceful and like many other things looks very easy until you try he stands upright and crosses the tops of the oars working them backwards entirely by a wrist movement it is curious that the boats both large and small should so resemble the boats at venice in the evenings when seen against the yellow glow a large chittagonian boat seems as if cut out in black velvet and the effect is almost exactly that of a gondola even to the action of the gondolier and I believe that sampans are actually identical with those used at Venice. The village at Cato was quite a model one. There was a long raised causeway down the center of each street, and the huts stood on legs on both sides. In the wet weather the whole place is under water. Sticking out of the thatch of the houses were strange-looking implements. They consisted of a rough hook on the end of a tall bamboo, and a primitive-looking flat fan, also on a bamboo handle. These things are put there by order for the purpose of tearing down the thatch and beating out the flames if a hut catches fire, and stowed away in the rafters, every villager must keep two chatties full of water in view of the same catastrophe. Periopuppy swarmed, for, owing to this horror of taking life, the Burman never kills the superfluous members of a litter, and consequently a poor lean mangy mother with a family of seven or eight miserable little specimens of unwanted life clinging to her who has little support to give them is a frequent sight in the village there were many flowers 
one a very pretty bell-shaped sulphur-yellow flower like a convolvulus with a deep crimson center i saw this again in the jungle near mamio another which grew in hedges was not unlike leopard's-bane it is also common in mulmain itself there were pretty little acacia trees with powdery scented white blossoms but as a whole i was disappointed with the flowers of the country many very wealthy merchants live in this village which was quite the neatest and cleanest i saw during my whole time in burma and they have erected some famous modern shrines and pagodas which attract numbers of pilgrims we passed on to these through the shady enclosure of a large pung yi chung i could not resist entering the chung itself and went up the steps and into the darkness of the great hall but i had not advanced far when a small pung yi sprang out of the gloom behind some columns and waved me back though he did not look very fearsome i was yielding to custom and retreating when at a signal given by mr m he withdrew the heavy gold-worked curtain suspended before the shrine so that we could see the gilt buddha behind this was the only time that any inmate of a chung objected to my going anywhere i liked the hall was full of offerings lamps of every shape and size in multitudes and very many clocks some of them the large common white-faced deal-cased clocks to be seen hanging on any cottage wall in england burmese offerings set strongly in these two directions it certainly does give the pungi something to do to wind up the clocks for they generally seem to keep going but why lamps i expect it is the old story of do as you would be done by and in the dim recesses of a cottage the burman pictures the glories of an oil lamp until it seems the most beautiful thing in the world several offerings assumed more original forms one was an ordinary iron bedstead we presently passed on from all this display of treasures to the new shrines behind the chung these were dazzlingly ornate all gilt and mirror mosaic with many roofs rising high into the shining sky running like a frieze round the courts are bas-reliefs and pictures representing the tortures of hell and delights of heaven in the crudest material manner people being sawn in two and burning head downwards or nipped by innumerable devils recall the sensations with which in one's childhood one looked at dante's inferno as illustrated by dore hanging in front of the monstrous buddhas in the shrines were the little paper streamers to be bought everywhere for a few pice there were also flowers in abundance some of the blossoms of the frangipani being pickled in a bottle but some of the offerings were grotesquely inappropriate one was a screen made of photos of actresses to be found in cheap boxes of cigarettes another was a pack of playing cards gummed together corner to corner and a third a representation of mr chamberlain cut out in concertina paper as sold on the london pavements it is most natural that what appears to the worshipper rare and uncommon should be offered but to europeans the effect is often almost paralyzing a tea planter with whom i stayed in ceylon told me that his two native servants were roman catholics and they with others built a chapel and asked him to come and see it he went but could with difficulty restrain his mirth at seeing the whole of the altar draped with copies of the pinkan in one shrine 
we had representations of all the three attitudes of the Buddha, and round the walls of the museum was a most extraordinary frieze, showing natives as black men and the Burmans as white. This frieze is considered a great joke by the Burmans themselves, and attracts thousands on holidays. Of course the Burmans are much fairer than the natives. Their skins are coffee or honey-colored, and they class themselves with the white races. Colonel Yule says, quote, By a curious self-delusion, the Burmans would seem to claim in theory at least they are a white people. End quote. This was the last of that splendid series of expeditions which added so much to my time in Moulmain, for on January 2nd I had to leave, to go back to Rangoon preparatory to starting off up-country alone. Much as I looked forward to this, it was a sad wrench leaving, but early as was the hour of the steamer's departure, numbers of my friends came down to give me a send-off, and even as the boat moved slowly away, I saw one topee and another being added at the last minute to the flower-bed of oriental turbans which adorn the wharf. End of chapter 5